folks, a very warm welcome to our latest Generation podcast. Um, my guest today is Dr. Dan Strange, and Dan is the, I'm just looking at the blurb here on his book, the director of the Crosslands Forum, uh, and they, they would say down there based in the north, but, you know, it's based in Newcastle, and for us, you know, that's deep south. Um, Dan, Dan has just written, he's written a, a number of books, but his latest one is uh, The Talk of the Steamy, as they say in Glasgow. Um, it is this one, Making Faith Magnetic. So I'm going to be talking about this. I want you to buy this afterwards, actually, because it's really worthwhile, and we will convince you. So Ge- the Generation podcast, where we talk about evangelism and mission with a Scottish accent, but we have folk. Dan, a very warm welcome to. No, it's great to be with you, David. Lovely to be here. Yeah. Can you tell us a wee bit about your story, how you ended up in Newcastle? Yeah. So, uh, well, I mean, going right back, I mean, I was so I was converted to the Boys Brigade in uh, Southend-on-Sea in uh, Essex uh, in the kind of uh, the 80s. Um, went to study theology at Bristol University, a very liberal degree. Stayed on to do a PhD on uh, uh, what happens to people who never hear the gospel. So looking at that from a reformed kind of, uh, I'm a kind of reformed Baptist kind of perspective. And then I worked for five years for UCCF just with theological students up and down the country. So I was often in Scotland because at that time there was a real, a great kind of evangelical uh, kind of group of Scottish universities who were doing really good, good work. And that's not kind of the case now. And then um, for the last 16 years, I've been at Oak Hill College. So I was a tutor in culture, religion and public theology. And then I was the director. And uh, in the last few months, I've just taken up a new role as the director of Crosslands Forum, which is a a centre for cultural engagement and mission, trying to do research, uh, resources for the church and uh, relationships. It's part of Crosslands Training, which is a um, uh, a training organisation that was started five years ago out of Oak Hill and Acts 29. We've got about 120 students, um, but this is a kind of a separate division. So, yeah, just getting used to new life. Uh, we've moved from London up to Newcastle. But um, there's a number of books that I've, I've been writing in this area of cultural engagement. I wrote a book called Plugged In a few years ago, and now this new book called Making Faith Magnetic. So it's great to be with you to be able to talk about it. Yeah, well, just to bring folk up to speed, um, there's been a real awakening in the last few years of what's called neo-Calvinism, and this kind of poster boy for that is the Dutch theologian Herman Bavink. Uh, of course, our very own James Eglinton has written a great book on Herman Bavink. Um, I hope to get James on a podcast. But Herman had, uh, for many years, probably a better-known nephew called J.H. Bavink, who wrote a seminal book called The Science of, of Mission. Yep. Um, now, would it be fair to say, Dan, that Ming Faith Magnetic, to tell us a little bit of the connection between J.H. Um, and this book? Yeah. So, um, yes, yeah. So, J.H. was um, Herman's nephew. He was a, a, minister, a kind of a missionary in what was then called Java, Indonesia, in the kind of the 30s and 40s. He ended up teaching. He had got a chair at the Free University of Amsterdam, died around 1960, in, in, in the 60s. And I've I just always been struck by his, um, his, his writing um, from a, a kind of re- a reform perspective, but very engaged in understanding the cultures around him. And 
this model, this magnetic points model that um, I'll, I'll be talking about, um, which is really the heart of the book, um, Bavink, kind of his context in, in Indonesia was a kind of a Islam, Hinduism, a kind of mystical kind of um, yeah. Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism. What I'm trying to do is take the anthropological framework that Bavink develops, which is very theologically, exegetically driven, and then say, how do we take that framework and apply it to our particular context in the, I don't like the phrase, but the post-Christian secular West, using the really the exact same anthropological model, but saying, let's look at the examples of what does this look like in our context now in the West, and especially in um, a kind of a, a UK context. So that's the premise of the book. It's um, It's meant to be repristinating or uh, bringing jh bavink's work up to date um with a few with a few tweaks um but saying here is someone who is profoundly um helpful to the church in terms of mission evangelism discipleship so i um i did a big book uh, a big academic book on christianity's relationship to other religions a few years ago called their rock is not as our rock and this is a, a kind of um a, a more accessible popular slice of that looking at these magnetic points yeah i mean i, I would uh, emphasize that um popular accessible now if, if this be, w was a sermon um the text would be romans 120 w would you agree oh definitely so i think um the great thing about this analysis is that it's not uh, the, these magnetic points that we'll talk about or this framework to understand culture, it's not an imposition on scripture. I think it comes out of Romans 1 especially. So the basic thesis is, um, as I say in the book, which would be a standard, a kind of reform way of understanding yeah. anthropology and theological anthropology. So um, we think our world thinks that God is hiding and that we've been looking for him and haven't found him. But we know from Romans 1 that God has revealed himself. He has made himself known. He, we, People do know God and they don't know God at the same time. There's that running to and running from. We suppress the truth, which is all kind of fairly standard fare. The interesting thing that Bavink talks about is that bit in Romans 1 where it says, God has revealed his, his invisible qualities, his divine power, his eternal power and divine nature. And um, it's interesting, I spent a kind of a day in the Oak Hill Library looking at all the Romans commentaries and really commentators don't really know why Paul talks about those particular invisible characteristics. And Bavink has a really interesting exposition where he says, look, eternal power is the idea that God has made us as his image bearers and we are dependent upon him. And, etern and uh, divine nature is the idea that we relate to God, not as a something or an it, but as someone. It's the idea that we are dependent upon him and accountable to him. So dependence and accountability are two um, um, aspects that are kind of hardwired into us as human beings. And even when we suppress the truth and we exchange it for other things, I idols, we don't lose that structure of dependency and accountability. It's just not to the living God of the Bible anymore. And yeah. so the magnetic points, Bavink says that these magnetic points are five issues or questions or categories that human beings are always drawn to, hence the magnetic illustration. He calls them direction signals as well. In the book, I talk about their five itches that humans have to scratch. 
they don't consciously think about it. They're living their their lives are a response to that. But they all come out of that dependence and accountability of Romans one. And so what all this all Bavink does is put a kind of a framework to them, and they're not compartmentalized. The points they they're all aspects on what he calls the one religious consciousness, the the person who is suppressing the truth um, uh, and uh, uh, substituting it for idols, but still is made in God's image. Yeah. I mean, what struck me, I've just I read the book this week, and one of the points you made is, uh, you know, after you've read this book, you'll begin to see these things everywhere. Uh, this week is, will we'll be broadcast next week, but this week is the second week of COP26. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as I was thinking of all the COP26 stuff, I thought, that is all, this is the stuff that Dan and JH have been talking about. You know, COP26 is a... a I, I, I kind of parallel religious convention in many things, you know, uh, and a lot of things in, in the book you'd find amongst the the kind of environmental lobby. Is that the, the reaction that you want people to have after oh, reading the book? Yeah, definitely. So I think what the, the beginning of the book, I talk about the need to for us to be encouraged that I think sometimes we think that we can't find traction with people. You know, in some ways we want people who'd be against Christianity, but lots of people just aren't bothered. They're so, we think there's, there's no connection points. Um, I liken it to this film that I don't know whether some people have seen this film called Free Solo, where the climber Alex Honnold kind of scales El Capitan without any ropes or anything. But there's this bit of the set, the bit of the climb where it looks as if he's, climbing glass and as you only look in you see there these little indentations and nubs that he holds onto and in some ways we need to do that creative work if people are made in god's image if they are human then there will always be points of contact and this uh, but it might not be in traditional religious categories but of course you know paul says to the athenians i see that you're very religious you have an unknown god so the magnetic points are giving us a framework to see how do we have that traction which then makes it easier to um uh bring um a gospel contrast i suppose so that's where the magnetic points work It, it is trying to say to everyone even though people don't think of it this way people are are religious they're always working out their image of godness and the fact that they've suppressed the truth and substituted it for idols and so all this the the magnetic points do is try to give some kind of scaffold or framework to that okay well i mean we'll give folk a a a taste of this i I was thinking of a a mnemonic i mean uh, very briefly that the magnetic points are totality uh, norm deliverance destiny and higher power Yes, uh, I'll have to think of a, a, a mnemonic to, to kind of. Yeah, the, yeah, the subtitles are so the subtitles are like to, so it, it, it's in the form of questions. So totality is there a way to connect? Yeah. Um, norm is there norm. a way to live? Deliverance is there a way out? Destiny is there a way we control or to control? And a higher power is there a way beyond? And so they are the. The, these are uh, itches that people have to scratch. These are the the issues that we're all wrestling with all the time, and we're always trying to give answers to those particular questions in our lives. Right. Let's give some folk a, a taste. Okay, I'm thinking of totality, and it's asking the question: What is 
um, our place in the universe. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I was just, you know, my, my, my synapse were just buzzing, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the sheer stimulation here. Um, you've got some, for example, about romantic relationships. Uh, can you, un- that, that, that really interested me that people expect too much. That's a little sample. Can can you unpack that? Yeah. So I think so. The idea of totality is this. Well, we as human beings, we want to be connected, and in some ways, that even relates back to what you were saying about COP. I mean, in the sense of people do feel they want a connection with the world around them, um, and the sense of belonging. And Baving says that we kind of oscillate or flip and flop between either, on the one hand, feeling completely insignificant as human beings. Who are we? We're nothing. But when we connect with something bigger, we suddenly feel significant. And so when we connect with something bigger, we we there's a sense of worth and identity. When we lose that sense of connection, we crave for it again and again. And what I'm trying to say in the book is whether that's going to an LGBTQ march, Comic-Con, being, uh, supporting a football team, family trees and our sense of rootedness, yeah. um, social media, uh, all of these are examples. And so the romantic relationships is, you know, I was just uh, having travelled on London Troops for a long time where a lot of the advertising is all about dating agencies where the idea is, is that you will find the, you'll find the connection that will complete you. And in a society that has kind of pushed God out, re- human relationships are seen as being the, the substitute there. So this, there's this idea that if I can find the one, I will have that sense of connection that I don't have. So again, that's not it's not traditional religious categories, but yeah. it's saying this search for connection. You know, why do we why do we um want to go to a stadium and a music stadium or a, a or a sporting event and celebrate with everyone else rather than just doing it in our bedrooms or our living rooms? Because there's a sense of being part of something bigger. And so this idea of significance and insignificance is something that we wrestle with all the all, all, all the time. And yeah. it's that idea of totality. And you've got that, you know, classic quote from Jeremy Maguire, you complete me, yeah. uh, which summarises the spirit of the age. I mean, what I love is, you know, a big TV programme is who do you think you are? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, you, you pointed out that that comes in a context and it is this search for identity. Yeah, rooted. Sending away for, for DNA tests, you know, yeah. uh, you know, I'm, I'm one fifth you know from outer mongolia and, and <laughs> yeah. kind of stuff like that so it, it, you think it's the, all- yeah. it's, it's the irony though that some that you know we want connection but all the stats that we hear say that we're the lonely as we've ever been and you know we're disconnected and so obviously already without you know giving the game away we're going to have to show how the way we look for connection the way we look for totality outside of the Christian faith without side be without being connected to Christ will always be futile because the the quality of connection and the consistency of connection is always varied, isn't it? You know, I can I can celebrate my team West Ham scoring a goal with someone next to me, but I'd never want to have small talk with them. I don't want a relationship with them, even though in that moment there's something that unites us. Um, because it's it's connection on my own terms or it's disconnection, which I think, you know. The whole point of the COP thing is that there's a searching, there's a recognition, yeah, we are connected to the earth, but we're massively disconnected in the way that we're dealing with that. And what does that mean? 
Um, so yeah, there's all kinds of uh, examples there that I try to bring on, uh, bring out in the book. Yeah, and I think a really good thing is in each one you you bring up, probably Baring brings this up that there's a paradox. Yeah, you you know, in in almost every single sense of connection, uh, we want to be in the crowd, but we also want to be individual, and that struck me as reflecting the way life is. Yeah, that there's yeah. a messiness to hum- humanity, and of course. The important thing here, and this is what I want people to take away, is I'm not saying I'm I'm giving my own examples from my context, but people have to work in their own. Co- I mean, what does it mean for what does it mean for Scotland? It's, it's interesting. I was on a podcast with another Edinburgh minister yesterday who was saying that even in Edinburgh or that which side of the coast you're on makes a difference in terms of the temperament and how you contextualise. So the examples, the examples I give, which actually aren't mine, they're my students that I've just they've given to me. Yeah. But the whole point is you take this framework and you apply it to your particular context at your particular time. So what does that totality thing mean for Scotland? What does it mean for Edinburgh? What does it mean for this part of Edinburgh? Um, because that contextualization, it gives, it does give the traction rather than just the generic application that is at 20,000 feet. And that's what I'm really interested in people doing. It's a solid theological framework but it's got to be contextualized into a particular specific local congregations church situation yeah absolutely let's talk about the concept of of norm um you know what is a a relationship to to rules you've said really helpfully that covid has exposed this can you can you tell us how has covid exposed our relationship to um, what what Yes, I mean, obviously, there's been all kinds of things about what's socially acceptable or not, whether it's face, you know, face masks or um, uh, contact. Um, It's funny, the... um, you would have thought maybe 20, 30 years ago that this idea of the norm, that we always have to have a standard, would be so kind of relativistic now. People don't believe in norms. But actually, I was, I mean, I was talking to a group yesterday. I think we're hyper-norming. I mean, the whole idea of cancel culture is that you've, you've transgressed a boundary that actually then you can't come back from. We're, we're very, it's a, it's an incredible, um, yeah, hyper, like radical norm where there are these societal conventions or these societal rules that you must not break. And it's, it's one strike and you're out. And I think we're seeing this in all kinds of different ways. It's interesting that the philosopher um, Charles Taylor says that um, where, um, humanism, humanists thought they were doing humanity a favour by getting rid of sin and total depravity. But actually, all that does is it, it raises the bar so high for what we expect humans to be that when they don't meet that, we've got no way of dealing with it because there is no there is no restoration. There is, and so you then become coercive in trying. You well, you co- coercive or you push people out when they can't reach the bar. And you know we we've there've been a number of well even in the even in the news this week high profile cases where people who have sent one tweet a wrong a bad tweet like fifteen years ago and they're now kind of what you know their their, their humanity is being questioned because there is no restoration so the norm one's really interesting because I think we live in a in a very norming society which is creates boundaries and. Um, yeah, and and they're not necessarily Christian. They're not. They're not the Ten Commandments in that sense. They may be based on them in some senses of some of the things that we are we're worried about. Um, but each culture has its norm, even min- subculture. So in the book, I talk about you know 
goths, for example, this is a student who sent it in, that even the way that goths want to be countercultural, they have to be cultural count, countercultural in the same way. I mean, it's a bit like C.S. Lewis's thing on the, the inner ring. We, we always create boundaries, who's in, who's out, and what are those standards? And I think all of us draw those lines um, because that, that's part of what it means to be human. Yeah, you'll you'll have to read the book to see what the significance of pink is for goths. That was that yeah, was yeah. something that, 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 that was a new revelation to that, me. It's interesting that yeah, the, this week um some the green councillor from Brighton and Hove um, took a plane up to Glasgow for COP26 and, and you know, I don't know share the guy's politics or lifestyle, but the poor guy has, has suffered like an Maoist purge. It's like the cultural revolution, you know, yeah. one step and, and you are out. Yeah. Um, you've got a really uh, funny thing about um, what was it called? Norm Bingo. Uh, yes. yeah. Again, the, the, the readers will look forward to that, but I mean, that's what I say. There, there are fun elements, there are playful elements in, in the book. Let, let's talk about um, deliverance. Yeah. Um, talk about, uh, is it Sensucht? Um, oh, yeah. So, the, yeah. So, yeah. So, so, anyone who like, is, is interested in like literature, and C.S. Lewis talks about this a lot this longing for, um, a, you know, a longing for like, um, deliverance or, lo- or, or or a better world, whether it's looking back. I mean, I make the point that the romantics in the 18th and 19th century used to build ruins because it was this idea of a, a you know, that's why they love the Arthurian legends. It's looking yeah. back to a golden age or looking forward to a golden age. And there's a sense in which this magnetic point says we're, we're looking for deliverances. We we know that there's something wrong with the world. And, in a, in a, and the question though becomes, what is the what is the problem? Let alone what the solution is, and we can't agree on any of those things. And it's not just big cosmic pictures. I would I talk I want to talk about mini deliverances in every day. People getting through the day. What is it that makes them enable to get them through the day? And one of those, and I'll get, this is a this is one of the things I find most interesting is that actually deliverance from thinking about deliverance is one of the examples. So a pastor friend of mine who's counselling two 30-year-old men who are addicted to this mobile phone game because they just can't, they just don't want to deal with their lives. And so they, they, they're distracting themselves, which is a distraction from thinking about what it means to live in the real world. Um, some people think that we need to be delivered from stuff out there. Of course, there's a lot of stuff, self-help books that say, actually, you need to deliver this. It's within you that's the problem. So there's a book that I talk about called The Chimp Paradox by this psychiatrist, Steve yeah. Peters, where he says, basically, you know, you need to deal with yourself. And actually, there's bits of your brain that aren't even part of you. I mean, it gets very complicated. So we all think that there's, you know, if if um, if ignorance is the problem, well, then we need to educate people. So this idea that there's something wrong that we need to be delivered from, and then ultimately, of course, we still work out what does it mean for de- for death. I mean, well, how do we can we be delivered from death? How do we not think about it, or how do we deal with it? Do we sentimentalize it? Um, so that that I I think that's the ultimate deliverance that people do think about, and maybe you know, COVID has brought that forward a little bit more though i think it's more about how how do we prolong life than how do we deal with the idea of death which is of course yeah really but i mean you you make a really good point it's almost counterintuitive how death became cool 
Um, yeah. Yeah. What, what, what do you mean by that? Well, yeah, I think that in the States especially, there's just lots of the, the beginning to be these kind of um, like death services where you, celeb- you celebrate death um, in a certain sense um, by all kinds of things. I mean, I think, yeah, I talk about cake decorate, a death cake or, you know, beauticians or there's all kinds of strange stuff but I think the point is that um yeah I I remember in our we had a a mums and toddler group in our church and tragically one of the mums died and at the funeral there the the kids of the mum were encouraged to go around the coffin with party poppers I mean it was this idea that we need to celebrate death um and this is where I, I do think looking forward this is where the Christian gospel has something amazing I mean you will you will know that when you go to the funeral of a believer yeah. You have at the same time deep sadness, which isn't sentimental. Jesus wept when Lazarus died. And yet you also have hope together. Yeah, And it's a unique experience because the world can either only have sentimentality or despair, but the Christian has both sadness and hope. And that's an amazing witness, I think, to, to what death means to the Christian. We don't deny that we still live under curse, but we do believe that Jesus Christ in the resurrection is the first fruits of new life. So that's where the, the you're starting to see how a Christian worldview compares to how how the world views death. And that's just one example. I mean, there's so many others. Yeah. Okay, thinking about destiny, let, let's tease our, leader, our, our listeners yes. a little bit. Okay, so I, I, I'm a nurse in the middle of A&E. Uh, you know, it's one o'clock, it's Friday morning, uh, Saturday morning in any ward, and I say, hey, guys, it's quiet in here. Yeah. Tell me what the reaction will be. Yeah, so well, so the reaction would be from some people, you should not have used that word quiet because now you've said the word quiet, the session, the shift will get busy. And um, what does that illustrate? Yeah, well, I think so. Destiny is this great thing about the relationship between, um, I suppose, fate and freedom. And superstition is one way that we think about that. It, it, are there forces above our control that are kind of manipulating the world or, or we can manipulate them by saying something or not saying something? And we see that in silly examples, I suppose. That might be one. I mean, although people do take that kind of thing seriously. My son's a policeman and you do not say the word quiet over the radio. You have to use the letter Q. And people are genuinely, people who are perfectly rational and wouldn't ever think about becoming a Christian, they get very upset when you say this. Um, uh, and I, But I think Baving has this great line. And again, it's very profound that he says, people both think that they lead their lives and they undergo their lives. And it doesn't have to be belief in, um, well, it's, it's funny, I did a, um, I did a, uh, uh, something for a, a, um, a student group the other day, and what were the big cultural issues that students were facing? And there's two, there's this phenomena called manifesting, where apparently if you think of something enough, it will come, it will happen. So lots of students are into this manifesting thing. <laughs> I, interesting, interestingly, the other thing that they were thinking about or worried about was this um, injection spiking, where people are spiking people yeah. by injection. Now, in some ways, that's a great. This is that 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 is this destiny thing. How much how much freedom do we have in our lives, or are we just puppets on a string? And you don't have to talk about spiritual things. I think lots of people think, and again, COP would be an example of this that. We're just kind of pawns. We don't have any control over anything. Um, lots of students that I've been talking to 
face the pressure of, on the one hand, they've been told since they were little, you can change the world, you can do anything. And they realize that, that they can't and the anxiety that they face with that, the pressure. And so there's lots of mundane ways that this destiny thing plays out. I've chosen some more kind of spectacular examples, but I think lots of people do feel as if they're stuck or trapped or what agency do they have? Um, and is there some kind of force or fate that is kind of determining their steps in some malevolent way? And that's what destiny is about. Yeah. How does that tie up with the fad just now for like personalities test, you know, folk are running to Myers-Briggs or oh, their Enneagram well, yeah, number think, and all that yeah, stuff? I think we're wanting to explain ourselves. And the question is, is there a kind of a... Um, uh, does this kind of test determine who I am? Well, does it tell me who I am? And does it determine who I am as well? And then you're faced with the thing about, am I stuck? Do, can, I, can I do anything about this? Uh, and then that's where some things like victim culture can come in because you think, well, I'm not to blame because of who I am. Everything's been done to me. Um, so there's a, there's a kind of a, that relationship between uh, fate and freedom, which of course, Philosophers have discussed for 2,000, more than 2,000 years, but you see it, it's where you see it at a very ordinary level with ordinary people in ordinary contexts where they're struggling with the same thing. Yeah. Okay, the, the, the last one would be higher power. You know, you often think, yeah. there. I often think of, you know, 12 steps and alcoholics anonymous, <laughs> yes. step number one, you know, I have a problem and I cannot overcome yeah. it for a, a higher power. You use, again, a, an expression with the source of the fire, I think a lot of folk can recognise the higher power thing, idea of, of transcendence, a greater yeah, yeah. I, um, so what reality. I was trying to do, yeah, what I was trying to do here was, in some ways, this is the... I, I'm still not that happy with... This is... Babbink used the term higher power, and I talk about a way beyond, because it's not simply yeah. a belief in God uh, immediately. One thing I would note, David, is that I think when Babbink was doing his work in Indonesia... Almost the higher power was the first thing. You, everyone believes in the God there. Everyone believes in gods or different gods. And the question is, can the gods give you the connection, the norm, the deliverance, the destiny? What It's reversed in our context in that I don't think people immediately start with the higher power. It's, it's deep down in our secular context. It's still there because, of course, we do believe, we, we're, as a Reformed believer, believe we're made in God's image. There's a sense of the divine that Calvin talks about. But it's buried deep down. And it's only, I think, as you start answering the other magnetic points, oh, how do I, who, is there something or someone that connects me? Is, who does set the rules? Can I be delivered? Who is there some power that is greater than me? Yeah. As you start asking that more, then I think you necessarily eventually come to this idea of, is there something or someone beyond? And so I don't, um, and then the other factor to, to, to recognize is, I don't deny kind of 2000 years of Christian influence in our culture, which means that often people are looking for what I call in the book, secularized religious experiences, so a friend of mine who went to the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem and felt something, it's not, it's not Orthodox Reformed Christianity. It's not the living God of the Bible, but it's this searching. It's this, you know, I think lots of people have talked about, you know, the secular being haunted, the idea that we find it very difficult just to close the lid on that there might be something transcendent. And then I think that's what the higher power's about. Now, eventually, I do think you then get to want to talk about what that higher power is, but it can be an impersonal force. I mean, that's 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 the point. But it's where the other points converge is this idea of higher power. <clears throat> yeah. 
No, um, I mean, I said that if, if the book was a sermon, the text would be Romans one twenty. You know, preachers often talk about the joke of a standard uh, sermon being three Ps and a poem. Uh, but your book actually has got two Ps, hasn't it? Yeah. So you've got, you've got the magnetic points, and secondly, you've got the magnetic person. Um, I want you to talk a little bit about what, what's the phrase you use here is Jesus as subser- uh, subversive fulfillment. Yeah. I thought that was a great idea. Yeah, so subversive fulfillment is something that I, I kind of talk about in my previous book, Plugged In. So the basic idea, and again, whether it's Acts 17 or 1 Corinthians 1 especially, so subversive fulfillment is the idea that um, the cross, the preaching Christ crucified, always confronts every culture the 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 gospel is the 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 antithesis it's the opposite of human ways of doing things what we think is foolishness god thinks is wise and vice versa but in 1 corinthians 1 paul also says he talks about two ethnic groups jews and greeks and both of them have different worldviews with different hopes dreams jews look for power greeks look for wisdom and paul isn't afraid to actually say at the end of that passage jesus is power jesus is wisdom in completely the opposite way that Jews and Greeks expect, but he still makes the connection. So the idea of subversive fulfillment is that the gospel always confronts, but the gospel always connects at the same time. So Paul in the Areopagus, he wanders around the objects of worship and he says, look, the unknown God at the end of the day is not Jesus Christ. It's not a smooth stepping stone. And Bavink's great on this. It's that there is no smooth stepping stone between people's idolatrous desires and Christ because people have to repent repentance is turning around and yet there's still connection like in Jeremiah 2 the um my people have turned from the fount of living water and turned to cisterns that cannot hold water people are looking for water but there still has to be a turning around so in the previous book I just called that subversive fulfillment I think it's a great model for understanding culture what I do in magnetic is to say actually Jesus is the subversive fulfillment of each of these magnetic points So Jesus is the way that we connect. Jesus is the way that we understand norms. Jesus delivers us. Jesus is how we understand destiny. Jesus is the higher power, but in a subversive fulfillment way, which will mean a turning inside out of the ways that we're looking for connection and norm and deliverance and destiny. So the, the, and in some ways, what I want to say is this is, this isn't any newfangled theology. For me, it's, standard orthodox reformed calvinism but the way that we contextualize the answer to each magnetic point and to the human person is i think um uh, um a, a creative way of doing it rather than just saying god created you you've turned from him you need to repent and believe the gospel which is really what what we're saying but what does it mean for each magnetic point and the way that people are are manifesting those magnetic points in their lives so Jesus is the answer, but give me the contextual way in which specifically Jesus answers each point. Yeah. Okay, let's, uh, I'm seeing the landing lights ahead in the airport here. Let's try and land this thing. Um, I'm really interested in how people share the, their own faith. Um, you've got a great quote here. Uh, I, I've written it down. Uh, it's not It's not a quote. I think you, you've, you've written it yourself. Uh, that we've to sprinkle little tastes of truth into the conversation and see where it heads. So I'm interested in listeners who want to improve their 
personal evangelism skills. I mean, I teach a, a little class called Gossiping the Gospel. Um, to me, to me, that this book would be ideal for anybody who wants. So, can 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 you yeah, tell sure. us what what that phrase means? Sprinkle little taste of truth. Yeah. So the first thing, and this is this this is not to um, uh, avoid the question or even say that's a invalid question, but I think the first thing, and this is towards the end of the book, is the first thing I want Christians to do is actually apply these magnetic points to their own heart, to their own discipleship. So how are we drawn away? How are we wanting connections? Or how do we think that God has got it in for us rather than seeing him as a loving heavenly father? Where do we look for other deliverances? And then I think as our hearts are changed, then we will naturally want to gossip the gospel because we have good news. So I think there's a certain amount of let's apply it to our own hearts and then out of our hearts, we then want to gossip the gospel. I think it is about listening to people. If part of the issue here is to know people well enough to know that they are answering these magnetic points and to say, to just have opportunities that when we could, we now have some lenses to be able to say, hey, this is where my friend seeks connection. This is their deliverance. When we have the opportunity to then say, um, well, actually, I... I look at it like this. So, I mean, I'll give an example. I, I mean, in, um, you know, when, when I used to get a taxi in London, invariably it would be with a Muslim driver who would have a, 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 an evil eye kind of dangling down. Yeah. And again, to be able to say, look, it's not that I don't deny that there are spiritual forces in the world, but I believe in Jesus who's conquered those. And I have, I believe in a loving heavenly father. I don't believe in a malevolent force who makes shifts busy or not. So to be able to, compare and contrast given that i think if we can say to people well look you we we believe in connection with christ but you believe in connection as well you believe that there are norms how's that working for you you know where where does the disconnect come from you know we want to be connected but we recognize in our lives we're disconnected um and so to be able to start comparing and contrasting i suppose that this magnetic framework gives a gives a theological framework that we can then be able to kind of um, parallel and contrast because that destiny point, you know, it's none other than the kind of sovereignty responsibility thing that we talk about all the time, especially, you know, God is sovereign. We are responsible. Now, in some ways, all non-Christians are bad theologians. They, they, they're dealing with the same issue, but they, they have a very skewed way of understanding it, which just leads to despair and disillusionment and destruction. But to be able to say to someone who feels completely stuck or they feel as if there is a that fate's doing them a deal, a bad deal, to say, look, I believe that we've been created in God's image. God does have a plan. We have we, we are slaves in a certain sense. But when we come to Christ, we have an amazing freedom. God, I, I can say God does have a plan for my life, but it's not to stifle me. It's for my own flourishing. So it, all of this is just trying to give points of contact that over um, a relationship, uh, a life, could be a lifetime. We have the confidence to try and connect what we believe in with what they are believing in at the same time. Great. Okay. Well, thanks um, for for that, Dan. I mean, as you, I mean, it seemed to me that you enjoyed writing this book. It kind of flows a little bit. What's your What's your dream? What's your prayer? That, that how would people question. use this book? Yes. Yeah, so and my so at the moment, I'm, I'm I'm hoping that one might be able to develop a course that churches could run, which, which would be going through this material. But at the moment, I'd love Christians to read the book. 
meet in their local congregations and just try and think about how do people in our local in your local area manifest these points and how might we both as individual Christians and as churches be able to try and scratch those itches in some ways and so I want I want people not just to use the examples that I've given but to think up their own examples and you know these things take time it you need to percolate but how do we contextualize the the analysis the framework in our own lives, in the life of our church. There's an appendix at the end of the book on what this means for preaching. There's all kinds of applications. Um, so that that's my dream, that, that Christians will pick up the book, read it, get together with other Christians in their local communities and say, what does this mean for my church, my local area, area at this time in this place? And then try to apply it um, in terms of the conversations that we have or the things that we want to do as a church that that would be my dream great okay dan thank you again for those of you who are listening is dan strange making faith magnetic published by the good book company for those of you in video here is the book um you can get it from free church books that we sponsor you can get it from eden you can get it from any decent uh, christian bookshop a, a great thing to do would be use it as a book club a few folk get together in a church go through a chapter and, I mean, you'll see stuff like there's a, a great um, Doctor Who quote, David Tennant famously says, I'm so sorry, so, so sorry. I think he says that in, in Doctor Who. How, how many times? That oh, was? a lot. Of, I think someone did a compilation. that You can find yeah. it on YouTube all the times that he says, I'm so sorry, because he realises that he can't solve everything. It's very really interesting given that he sometimes, Doctor Who's sometimes seen as kind of a saviour figure. David Tennant was the Doctor who basically said, I can't solve everything. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and again, you know, if you're interested in theology, one of the great things about Calvinism is neo-Calvinism has shown us the, the Bavings. Uh, it connects so much with, with real world. It's not scholastic. It really, you know, I mean, John Stott spoke about double listening, building bridges into the culture. This is a quintessential bridge-building book. I am really excited about this book. And it's not just a, a you know, a Dan's not, not paying me here. You know, I don't need to... <laughs> He's, no. he's not going to retire in the royalties against no. this stuff either, but it's really, really worth buying. Dan, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on, David. And generation listeners, thank you for joining with us again. Um, this is the second in our second series of Generation Podcast. Stick with us. We've got more exciting discussions and conversations over the next few weeks. Have a great day, and we wish you every blessing. Goodbye. Goodbye.